So good evening, everybody. Welcome to the mind-blowing Kabbalah series, where we're going to look at some really powerful ideas straight from the Kabbalistic sources, from primary sources of Kabbalah, and apply them to life. Kabbalistic ideas are extremely esoteric, deep, otherworldly, but they're only useful if we take them in and make them real. And so while many of the ideas we're going to explore over the next few weeks are going to be really out there and quite otherworldly, we will also find that every single lesson is quite personal and can be applied and made very, very much real. So as we go through uh, this lesson, you're welcome to write down questions in the chat or at the end, uh, unmute yourself so we can have back and forth and discussion. But many of the, the ideas that we share, it's, it's structured and you'll find that a lot of your questions might be answered as you hold on. So, so we'll keep the questions until the end. But all questions will be welcome. Tonight's class is on the topic of Tsimtsum, how to say nothing. And we're going to learn one of the most fundamental and prolifically written about topics in the Kabbalah, known as Tsimtsum, which we'll define. And we'll see how you can take this idea and really bring it home. The way we're going to go through this for taking it from theory to practice, we're going to look at several sources. Uh, primary, the primary source of Kabbalah, the Zohar, where we'll find the first hint of the idea of Tzimtzum. We'll then move to the Arizal, a, a, a later Kabbalist relatively, where he explains what Tzimtzum really means. We'll then move to Tanya, who's only a couple hundred years ago really recent history from a Kabbalistic perspective in the development of the idea of Tsimtsum and the personalizing of it. And then we're going to see how it applies to us, how you and I can experience Tsimtsum, what would otherwise be a divine, mystical, out there concept. We can actually live it and bring it, bring it into our life. That's the, that's the structure of the evening. So first, we need to really understand what the problem is that the Tzimtzum concept solves. The problem is this, and that is God is everywhere. That is the very definition, if we can say a definition of God, who is undefinable, is that he's everywhere. And so where are we? Where do we exist if God is everywhere? Now, this question may not have popped up in your mind before, because when we say God is everywhere, what do we mean by God is everywhere? We think of it as meaning, well, just like um, there's air everywhere. So too, God is everywhere. You know, we're surrounded by air wherever we go. And so, we're, so too, we're surrounded by God wherever we go. What's the issue? If God is everywhere, that's fine. God is everywhere, including right here where, where we are. But God is not everywhere the same way as air is everywhere. God being everywhere means on every level of existence. On every plane of reality, the entire all of reality is filled with God. It's not just that he surrounds reality. He is reality. He fills all levels of reality. There's no place 
no time, no concept, no level where God is not. And that being the case, it is problematic. Where are we? How do we fit in? How do we actually exist? In fact, this is the question that the Kabbalists come from. It's interesting that many people come from a question, does God really exist? And if he does, how? The Kabbalists come from the opposite perspective. God's existence is a given. The question is, how do we exist? God's existence is, he is existence. What are we? And how do we fit in? There's, the assumption is that God is. There's also an assumption that we are. And I think it's fair for all of us to assume that we, we do exist. Otherwise, what are we, what are we doing here? Who's, who's even talking? And uh, why, why, why would you listen? We, we must exist. We are here. We're certainly here. But God is everywhere on every level. So where do we fit in? It's almost like this question was a, a question, not that we have now, but that God had before creating the world. Before existence, you and I and the entire universe came about, God's quandary was, where am I going to put this thing? Where, where am I going to put this universe? I, God, feel all of existence. I, I am all. So where does something else go? Where does the universe go? Where, where am I going to put it? This, this question that, that God had before creating the world and, and we are now asking is, can be applied to, to many circumstances where one being takes up so much space, there's no room for another. If you've ever been in the presence of an overbearing person, they, they fill the entire space of the room with themselves. There's no room for you to be there. Somebody who is very busy with themselves, preoccupied with themselves, and has seemingly a lot to say and spreads themselves very broadly, there's no room for you. And such a person cannot have a relationship with anybody because there's no space for anybody. God was like that, but not in a negative sense, not in an unpleasant sense, like an overbearing person. Just the definition of God is the all being. He, he is the all being. He's the being of all. And so when God decided for whatever reason, which we're not going to discuss right now, that he wanted to create a universe, that there should be something other than him. But where is he going to put that? Where is it going to go? This was the problem that God had, that the Kabbalistic idea of symptom is going to solve, is going, is going to answer. Let's have a look. The solution is the symptom. The word symptom means reduction, contraction, concealment. It's Hebrew word, letzamtsem in modern Hebrew means to limit, to hold down, hold back. And so what God needed to do was to reduce himself, to contract himself, to conceal himself, to allow there to be space for the universe. Just like that overbearing person, that, that person who talks a little bit too much and takes up a little bit too much space. If they want a relationship, they can't assert themselves. They have to reduce themselves. They have to hold themselves back. They have to make space. They have to allow there to, there to be room for another by not being so out there, not being so expressive. For God to create the universe, 
to make space for the universe, he had to hold himself back, reduce himself, conceal himself, contract himself, which is called create a tzimtzum. Now, this at first glance seems like not rocket science. <laughs> if, if you take up too much space and you want there to be room for something else, what do you do? You got, you got to move over a little bit. Every, every, every kid on a, on a squash bench knows, move over a little bit. Give, give me some room. If you're taking up too much room, so, so reduce yourself. Reduce your, your, your space that you're taking up. That doesn't seem like something that we need the Kabbalists to come up with as this grand revelation of a whole doctrine of Tzimtzum. It seems like a, a really obvious point that if you're taking up too much room, make space for another. Well, it would be obvious in, in those human interactions, in that person who's overbearing, it's obvious that that's what they need to do. But it's not so obvious in God's case. Because in God's case, it's a bit more complicated. For God to create the world, he had to express creativity, to give it existence. But on the other hand, for him to create the world, he had to hold himself back, reduce himself, contract himself, and be out of the way. You see, the overbearing person has to just get out of the way. They have to just hold themselves back and stop talking for a little bit. But God in creating can't just leave. He can't just move away because if that's what he did, there wouldn't be a world. Remember, the world does not exist before God creates it. Unlike the other person that the overbearing person wants to interact with who exists, the world does not exist. For the world to exist, God has to create it. But creating is expending energy, expressing oneself. And if God expresses himself, who's himself? He's the all. He's the infinite. There's no room for anything else. So here's the paradox. That God, on the one hand, wants to create, but he wants to create another. To create another, he has to be there, but not be there. He has to be present creating but he also has to hold back and allow space for the world to exist so it's not so simple to say that the tzimtzum means getting out of the way because if god is out of the way the world can't exist the world is dependent on god to be created but at the same time if god is there so then the world can't be because there's no room, there's no space for it. God's overwhelming presence, his infinite presence, will not allow the world to exist. The world will be subsumed in him. So this Tzimtzum idea must be a little bit more subtle than just getting out of the way. This reduction, contraction, concealment, it must be a little bit more uh, refined, this idea. It's a bit more sophisticated than just getting out of the way. So to really understand what the tzimtzum means, let's look at some primary sources. The first source of the tzimtzum really is the Zohar. The Zohar was the, the most fundamental of all Kabbalistic works written in the second century in the Holy Land of Israel by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students. He was a teacher from the Talmud. 
and he was also the father of mysticism. He was the first one to commit into, into writing, into, into a, an organized treatise, the, the lessons and teachings of Kabbalah. And in his great work, the Zohar, the Zohar actually starts with these words. There's, there's an introduction, about 14, 15 pages of introduction. And then the actual work itself starts with these following words. You have there a picture of a very old print of the first page of Zohar that starts Bereshis at the beginning. It's, it's, it starts with the book of Bereshis, the book of Genesis. And it says the following words. In the beginning of the desire of the king, he engraved an engraving in the supernal purity. In Hebrew, it's Beresh Hurmanusa de Malka, actually Aramaic, the, the Zohar is written in Aramaic. Beresh Hurmanusa de Malka, Golof Glifu Betirila. These are the first words of the Zohar. Very opaque and difficult language to, to understand. But if we get just a sense of what the Zohar is saying, the very beginning of the desire of the king, the king meaning God, his desire to create. The very first thing, if he desires to create, that he had to do at the very beginning of this is to engrave an engraving in the supernal purity. The supernal purity meaning his light, his divine presence. He had to engrave in it. Engraving, like when you engrave on uh, a piece of wood or a piece of metal or a stone, you remove part, part of the material in order to create an empty space, a void. And so the wording of the Zohar at the very beginning is that at the beginning of creation, when God wanted to create, he had to engrave from the supernal purity, from his own light, to, to create a, a space, an openness. And the, in the, that's it. The Zohar does not really elaborate further this idea. It just says that, this idea of engraving. Now, if you think about engraving, to use the, 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 the metaphor of an engraving, when, when somebody engraves, they're taking away. When you engrave a stone, you're subtracting, you're removing from the stone, you're, make, you're making it less on the one hand. But on the other hand, by doing so, by engraving something in the stone, what emerges is a pattern, an image or words. Even this uh, picture here of the Zohar could have been that, that print, that, that image was from some type of engraving, an imprint. The engraving is removing, but the removing allows something to be present, allows something to be revealed. And so the Zohar here is intimating in very brief words the idea that creation was actually an act of God opening up a space to allow there to be another. And by doing so, this was not a, a negative case of him going away. It was a very creative way of allowing there to be another, like an engraving that what comes out of an engraving is not less, but more. If you have a stone that's just plain stone, that's lovely. But if you engrave in the stone a message or an image, a picture, so then you've increased the beauty of that stone. You've brought out something in that stone that wasn't noticeable, wasn't visible before. That is actually very powerful. You've, you've increased the stone. You've made it greater. 
Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, the great Kabbalist of the 1600s, the 1500s, 16th century, he elaborated on this idea hugely. What was one line in the Zohar is an entire doctrine in the writings of Rabbi Yitzchak Luria. The Arizal lived in Sfat, northern Israel, in, in the 1500s. He only lived there for two years. He, uh, he spent the last two years of his life in, in Sfat, but he's become synonymous with the city. When you go to Sfat, there are two shuls that are named after him. His burial place is there. His mikveh is there. And everyone talks about the Arizal Rabbi Yitzhak Luria. He was only there for two years, but the impact he had was huge. He codified and organized the Kabbalistic writings in, in a way that nobody before him did. So the Zohar is from the second century. And 1300 years later, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria came and took the ideas of the Zohar and other Kabbalistic writings and organized it and clarified it. So in one of the works from Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, who he himself actually did not write anything, but his students wrote down his teachings. His primary student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, has a book called Oitras Chaim. And in that, he quotes his teacher saying the following. In the beginning, a simple divine light filled the entirety of existence. So in the beginning, this is before creation, a simple divine light filled everything. There was just the divine light. When there arose in his simple will the desire to create the worlds, he contracted his light, withdrawing it to the sides and leaving a void and an empty space in its center to allow for the existence of the worlds. Now, if we look carefully, we'll see that Rabbi Yitzhak Luria here has added a little bit more color to the idea of the tzimtzum than what we saw in the Zohar. The Zohar said that was, there was an engraving and a, a creating an, an opening. Rabbi Yitzhak Luria here says a little bit more exact in his words. And he says that God was contracting his light, withdrawing it to the sides. He uses the metaphor of light, which is very often used by the Kabbalists, particularly the Arizal, that it wasn't God's self that was removed in the Tzimtzum. It was his light that was moved in the Tzimtzum. And this is important. Everything has itself and its light. You, me, all the objects around us, we have our self and our light. Our self is our core, our being, me. Our light is what we exude, what we give off, the energy that we express. When I look at you, I'm actually only seeing your light. I'm not seeing you. Just like uh, the light of the sun shines down upon us, so too everything's light shines upon us. When you look at a person, when you look at a screen, it's light that you're seeing, not the thing itself. It's, it's the expression of it, the projection of it that you're seeing, not the thing itself. And so God too, at the beginning of creation, he filled all existence with his light. And that light is what he contracted. He hid away in order to allow there to be space for the world. But he never contracted his self. His self is still completely here and present. It's just his light that he contracted, which means that God still fills all of existence because God doesn't change. God is, was, and always will be. But he contracted, he hid away 
his projection of self, his expression of self, his light, that which comes off him. He made himself undetectable in the world. And so by doing that, God is at the same time completely present and yet absent. He's totally here, but not detectable. This solves the conundrum. This solves the problem. But on the one hand, God has to create the world. So he has to be here. The world is dependent on him for its sustenance and existence. So God has to be present. But as long as God is present, his, his all-powerfulness, his all-powerful self subsumes all other existence. There's no room for anything else. So for that, he contracted his light, not himself, but his light. So he shouldn't be projecting himself. He shouldn't be visible, detectable, but he's totally there. This we see from the words of, of Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, the Arizal, that the contraction, the tzimtzum, was in the light of God, not himself. And even that light, the contraction is that it shouldn't be perceived. It's allowing a space for the existence of worlds. The Kabbalist after Rabbi Yitzhak Luria explained, he didn't mean even a literal contraction, that God is not there. Tzimtzum is a concealment. His light is hidden away. And indeed, our job, our mission, is to bring back the light. That we who inhabit this world, we inhabit the world where God's light is concealed, which means we look at a world and we don't readily see God. We look at a world and we see a world. And the very word world in Hebrew, olam, comes from helem, which means concealment. The world is a concealment. We see a world that seems random, sometimes cruel, meaningless. There's a world where there is good and there's also evil. And evil sometimes triumphs. There's a world that doesn't always seem to make sense or have any direction. The purpose is not always obvious. And you can deny God in this world and get away with it. Nothing happens to you if you, if you deny God. Nothing happens to you if you go against him. You can get away with it. You can get away with murder. Literally, you can get away with murder. That's a world where God is concealed, where, where God's light is concealed. He's not, he's not obvious. Our job is to overcome that concealment and to bring him back, to find him in that hiddenness, to, to reverse the, the tzimtzum by drawing his light in. Every time we do a mitzvah, a good deed, something holy, every time we, we do an act of, of love and beauty and bringing goodness into the world, that expands the world's capacity for light. It brings more light into the world and we start to reverse the tzimtzum. That's our job. God, he did the tzimtzum to create the world. But that's because the world can't handle godliness. Our job is to make the world a place that can handle godliness, to expand its, its capacity. Because it's the divine light that's hiding, but God's self is here all the time. He was never gone. The self was always here. And that's why the Kabbalists say that faith, 
comes naturally. Faith is not something you need to get. Faith is something you have because God is totally here. His presence, his essence is totally here. His light is not here, so we can't see him. But his self is here, so we can sense him. But not without our physical eyes. With our soul, he's, he's there. He's obvious. And that's where our faith is. So where we've come now from the engraving that the Zohar described to the concept of the light being concealed that the Rabbi Yitzchak Luria develops, we're starting to get a picture of this quite complex idea that God, to create the world, is totally present because his self is completely here, and yet he's completely hidden because his light is concealed in this world. And that allows this world to exist. That's what gives it its existence. If we take this idea a step further, we go to the book of Tanya, the great work of Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the founder of the Chabad school of, of Kabbalah, who lived in 18th century Russia. That's a picture of him. Rabbi Shneir Zalman, in his book of Tanya, in the, in the second section of the book, known as Shara Yichud Bamuna, which is his treatise on the oneness of God and many of these Kabbalistic ideas as they're applied, he says the following fascinating thought. He discusses the, the Tzimtzum in many places. This is just a, one little paragraph. Just as it is impossible for any creature's mind to apprehend God's attribute of gedula, literally greatness, which is the ability to create a being out of nothing and give it life, Exactly so, it is impossible to apprehend the divine attribute of gevura, which is the ability of tzimtzum. Gevura literally means strength, holding back, the ability of tzimtzum. So just like it's impossible to understand God's creative, expressive power, that he can create a universe out of nothing, so too it's impossible to understand God's ability to hide himself in doing that. The restraint, he continues, the restraint of the expression of the life force from his gedula. That's what simsum is. The restraint of the expression of the life force from his gedula. Gedula, we said, was God's creative power, his ability to create a universe. Gevura is his simsum, the restraint of that expression, preventing it from descending upon and manifesting itself to the created beings, giving them life and existence in a revealed manner but rather with his face concealed. What's Rabbi Shnei Zalman saying here? That we understand that God created the world out of nothing, meaning before the universe, there was nothing to create the world from. There was no ingredients. There was nothing to put the world together with. There was, there was, there was no raw materials to create the world. Unlike a person, when we create something, we go to Bunnings, and we find what we need, or we go to a supermarket and get the ingredients, and we put it, the various pieces together by cutting and cooking and whatever it is we're doing, but we've got raw materials. God didn't create the world from raw materials. He created it from nothing. There was nothing, and then there was something. That is God's creative power, to create something from nothing. We cannot understand that. No human mind can grasp the idea that there was nothing and then there was something. Even nothingness 
we can't really grasp, let alone something coming from nothingness. The idea that at a certain point there was nothing and then there's a universe, that, that's beyond our, our comprehension. We can say the words, we can even start to imagine such a concept, but to, to break that down and to say, so hang on a minute, there was nothing and then there was something. So what was, what was happening in that second before the something? What was actually happening there? And, and what went, how did it go from nothingness to somethingness? That, that we can't understand. The human brain loves to track things back to their source, that this came from that, and, and to, to, to find a, a stream, uh, a, a logical string of events. You can't go back to something coming from nothing and explain or understand that. The human mind cannot, cannot grasp it or comprehend it. And so we, and we're not surprised because we're not God. God creates something out of nothing. We're human beings. We can't, we can't apprehend that. But here the Tanya says what we also can't apprehend is that when God creates this world, something out of nothing, he does that without being detected. He does that in a, a hidden state without overwhelming the world. That we also can't understand. But it is. It has to be that way. Just like God creates the world, which is an expressive action, creation, he also hides himself while creating the world. How do you do that? How can you be involved in something, intimately involved in creating something, and at the same time not be detected? Th that's baffling. Th that doesn't make any sense to the human mind. If I'm affecting you, then you must see me. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't teach you this class without any expression, without saying or appearing or doing anything. That, that would be impossible. If I'm teaching you something, it means that I'm impacting you. I'm saying something that you're hearing. I can't do it with the camera off, on mute, and, and, and I'm, I'm already sleeping in bed. That, that, that's impossible. I can't express, interact, if I'm not here in a noticeable way to you. And if I'm in a state where you can't notice me, you can't see me, you can't detect me in any way, then I'm not impacting you. And yet God created the world and continually gives it existence while being undetected. How does that work? How's that possible? Says Rabbi Shneur Zalman in the Tanya, no idea. We can't, we can't comprehend such a thing. That God can be intimately involved in every moment of our existence, not just watching it. He's not just watching us. He's creating us right now. He's giving us energy right now. And we can't feel it. How does he do that? We can't understand. That's what symptom is. Symptom is that God expresses his creative power in a way that's totally hidden from the recipient of that expression and yet we're receiving it this is something to contemplate he says we can't understand it true we can't understand it 
but we can contemplate the, the wonder of that, that no matter what I'm doing at any moment, God is completely energizing that. No matter how I'm feeling or what I'm involved in, God is energizing me at that moment and allowing me to choose how I live my life. He's not overwhelming me. He's not, he's not this overbearing uh, in-law, let's say, that is, is too, too involved in telling us what to do. He's completely standing back and allowing us to exist as independent beings with free choice. But at the same time, he's way more than an overbearing in-law. He's intimately involved in everything we're doing, not just observing it, but energizing it. Both at the same time, both extremes at the same time. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible mind-baffling thought. It's also very encouraging because it means that wherever I am in my life and whatever I'm doing, God is totally there. He's totally with it. And he's giving me the strength to face whatever I'm going through. Even when I'm doing the wrong thing, what I shouldn't be doing, God is also energizing that. He's funding it. Not because he wants us to do the wrong thing, but he wants us to be free, to have free choice. That is the contradiction that is answered by the tzimtzum. Total presence and yet completely absent. God is totally there and yet completely giving us the space. If you think about it, this contradiction is all theological contradictions. Free choice and God's knowledge. God knows what we're going to do, but we have free choice. How do they coexist? If God knows what we're going to do, so then how can we not do it? If we can't not do it, we don't have free choice. Or if we do have free choice, that means we could go either way. So then that must mean that God doesn't know what we're going to do because I might have not done that. I could have done the other thing. How could he know in advance? Either I have free choice and therefore God doesn't know or God knows and therefore I don't have free choice. How can you have both? Well, there's actually an answer to that. The symptom is the answer to that. That God can be totally present in what we're doing without us feeling without us sensing that. And therefore we're having total free choice. Did God know what we're gonna do? Yeah. Did he make us do it? No. Because the tzimtzum allows him to be completely present and yet totally hands off. How that works, how he's able to do that, we can't understand, but why are you surprised we can't understand? We can't understand God. That's what tzimtzum is. Now, I want to try and take this concept of tzimtzum, of being completely present and yet completely hands-off, and see how it applies to us. How could we employ the concept of tzimtzum in our lives in a way that will actually elevate us? We are created in God's image, which means that even though we're human beings, finite beings, but we are 
an image and a reflection of the divine. We have a divine soul. And so therefore the divine attributes we can emulate. And if God can enact a symptom where he can be completely present and yet totally absent at the same time, we can do the same thing. I want to look at an example of this. Simpson in real life means not being passive or distant, rather actively putting yourself aside to leave room for others. We need to be clear as we apply this to ourselves. Symptom does not mean absence, meaning avoidance. Symptom means actively putting yourself aside to leave room for others, but in a way that you're interacting with them. You're very present with them. But your presence is not overwhelming the situation. Because just like God had the original question of how do I interact with the world? How do I create a universe that's outside of me? It can only be by me allowing space for it, but yet being totally present. We have the same question ourselves. We have the exact same question because just like God filled all of existence and there was therefore no room for anyone else, so to each one of us fill our own existence. There is a point in our lives certainly when we are born and our early years where we fill all of our own existence and nothing else actually exists. Our perception of the world outside of us is that this is just the background to my life. I am the center of the universe. I'm all that exists. And this is all here to serve me. A baby certainly sees the world that way and their parents that way. A child continues to see the world as there to serve them. And it only exists for me. And there's no existence outside of me. It's like when a child sees their teacher for the first time outside of school. They can't believe it. Like in a shop, a teacher exists outside. They thought that at the end of the day at school, the teacher goes into the cupboard where the toys are kept. And, and they come out in the morning. They're, they're there for me when I go to school. They're, they're, they're a, the background noise of my life. They're the extras who are playing in my show, as, as, as is everybody. This is a childlike view of the world, but we don't necessarily grow out of that so quickly. We continue on some level to think that the entire world is in the background of my life, that I'm the center of the universe and everyone else is just playing their role in my life as opposed to seeing people as real people with their own existence and their own life. I'll prove it. When we um, didn't get back to somebody, they called us and we didn't call them back. And then you bump into them. You feel so apologetic. I'm sorry I didn't get back to you because you thought that the entire time from when you spoke to them last, and, and to, from when they called you until they've just been thinking about you and why you didn't call them. That's all they've been thinking about. That's, that's, all, that's all that's on their mind. You think that the, the people in your lives, wherever you left off with them, that's where they still are. That's what they're still thinking. The entire time, whatever they're doing, they're thinking about, about you. We, we think that way. 
we catch ourselves thinking that way we realize how ridiculous it is but naturally we do think in in that way and that's because the default position of a human being is that there's me and and i i feel all of existence we learn to give other people space in our lives and to invite them into our lives but that is for many of us an effort it has to be consciously done we have to develop the skill of allowing another to actually be that other people really exist as obvious and silly as that sounds it is it's actually a new idea for for our our natural psyche that other people are really others they have their own lives they're not in the cupboard at, at the kindy they actually have their own lives their own thoughts it's not all about me and so to enter into a successful relationship with any person requires this symptom activity requires us to actually make a space for the other where we are not dominating where we we are not taking up the space there there are others in the world and they have their own self their own identity and we have to be able to interact with that person as they are not on our terms not the way we decide but for them as they are so this is not being passive this is not saying okay fine i'll just shut up and let you talk fine I, I, I won't say anything, you, you, I'll give you a turn. That's, that's not symptom. That, that's avoidance. Symptom is where I say I am totally here. I'm actively allowing you space now. Not, not that I'm uh, condescending to allow you to exist. Not that you need my permission to exist. That I am putting myself aside to allow you in the space. The obvious and most common example of this is listening. Just listening. But there's listening and there's symptom listening. Are you a good listener? Most people would say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a decent listener. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good listener. But a lot of our listening is not listening. A lot of our listening is just waiting for our turn to talk is developing our response and even as we're listening we're not actually listening and hearing what the other one is saying we are interpreting what the other one is saying according to how we perceive things we're halfway through the sentence already guessing what the, the rest of the sentence is we assume we know already and we're not hearing what the other is saying we're hearing what we are perceiving they're saying. That's, that's how much of listening works. And the proof of this is, think about how many misunderstandings happen in a day, in, in intimate relationships and marriages, in workspaces, how many conversations we have where we did not hear what the other one said, and for that reason, we misinterpreted, misunderstood, and did the wrong thing, or responded incorrectly, or got upset unnecessarily. 
And it was purely because we didn't actually hear what they said, but we could sweat. But I heard these were your, your words. This is what you said. If we had a, a tape recording of it, if there was CCTV footage and we could go back on the conversation, we might even be right that that's what was said, but the way you took it was, was wrong. Or you might find that that was not what was said. That's what you heard, but that's not what was said at all. This happens so many times per day and is the cause of a huge amount of aggravation. It's, it's simply because we actually were not listening. So symptom listening would be where, first of all, you give complete attention, which is much easier to say than to do. Complete attention means that I'm not doing something else. I'm not, I'm not looking at my phone and saying, yeah, yeah. I'm not even thinking about looking at my phone or doing something else. I'm not thinking about the next thing I need to do. I'm giving total and complete attention to you. E even as we have this uh, class, it's hard to give total attention, particularly because we're using devices. So every device, you can do other things. Even on the device you're using can, can be used for other things. Or you can have a second device. And there's other stuff going, going on. So it's very easy to stop listening and to do other things. And our attention span has been stretched to the thinnest in our times. To actually give total attention to somebody is the first act of symptom, contracting yourself to this moment, to this person, to what they're saying, and shutting out everything else, everything else that's going on in, in your life or around you, and being completely focused and listening. That is, that is a, an extremely deliberate act of listening. It's symptom because you're holding yourself back from whatever else you might be interested in doing or might be distracted by. You're holding yourself back from all of that to be completely focused on the one you're listening to. That's the first step of, of symptom listening, complete attention. The second is to suspend your assumptions what you assume the person's gonna say. You, you, you think you know it all already. You, you, know what, you know what they're gonna say because you've heard it all before. No, you haven't. You haven't heard this. Even if you think you have, you haven't. Don't assume you know what they're saying. And don't even when you've listened to what they said, don't assume you understood. Clarify whether you understood what they said. Ask, is this what you mean? Are you saying this? Check before assuming that you got it because you might not have. The very fact that they are another being, not you, means that their train of thought is different to yours. And the way they think and perceive is different to yours. And so even though the words they're using are similar words to what you use, the meaning that they give to those words could be different. Check. Don't assume that you got it right. 
Also, the words might be different. A use of words might be different to how, how you use words. They might, they might use different terminology. Clarify exactly what they said. Is this what you mean? Don't assume that you understood it. And don't assume that you know what they're talking about before they've said it or after they've said it. Make, make sure you get it right by checking in with them. Suspend all your, your assumptions. That's a symptom because I'm contracting myself and my worldview, my prejudices, my color on things. And I'm just hearing what you're saying, your version of it. This is particularly important if the discussion is over a contentious issue, something that you don't agree on or a, a tension that you've been through. Make sure you're hearing exactly what they're saying. Don't assume you know why somebody's upset at you. Hear what they have to say from, from their perspective. Let them explain it. Don't, don't assume that you know already. That's, that's a, a, the second step of Tsimtsum listening, where you hold back your assumption. And the third is to withhold your response. Don't start to formulate your response to what they're saying while they're talking. There may be required a response from you. You may be being asked a question or presented with, with a scenario that you, that you need to give your side of, of the story. But that's next, that's not now. While you're listening, listening has to be completely accepting, receiving, hearing what's being said, not formulating the response as it's being said. Because as soon as you're formulating your response, you're asserting yourself. You're not giving room for the other. You're putting you in there. It's not letting them talk. And so as tempting as it is to start to think how I'm going to respond, you're presenting me with an issue. I need to explain the solution to it. You're accusing me of doing something wrong. I need to come up with a defense for it. You're describing a situation that I see differently. I'm going to need to correct you on this. Not now. Your response, your defense, your corrections, that can come later. First, hear what is being said. Withhold your response. Don't let your mind be, be thinking of the, the answer back that you're going to give. Because once you're doing that, you can't be listening and doing that at, at one time. Now you're just receiving the information. So tsimtsum here means withholding within yourself your version, your, your response. And then a hard one in the tsimtsum listening process is to not take it personally. Even if it is personal, even if you are being accused of something or somebody is upset at you and saying, this is what you did, why did you do this? How could you say this? Even if that's what's being said, don't take it personally. Later you can, later you might, but when you're listening to it, take it for what it is. As soon as you take something personally, as soon as what you hear, you start to get upset about and feel attacked. So then you're no longer listening. You're now emotionally mixed in. You're clouded by feelings of being unfairly accused or judged or whatever it may be, but you're not hearing what's being said. And maybe there's value in what's being said. Maybe you actually do need to hear it. This is a harder step in symptom listening 
that even when you are the topic that's being spoken about, don't take it personally. Now, of course, you're going to have to take it personally later. Otherwise, you're not going to change. But to get there, you first have to hear what's being said. Don't assume that you're being attacked. So often, these tense conversations happen between two people who love each other. Think about it. Who do you criticize the most? And who criticizes you the most? Who gets upset at you the most? And who do you get upset at the most? The stranger down the street? The, the, the person who, who works in the office next to you? The, 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 the guy that's serving in the cafe? They're, they're not the people who we criticize the most. It's the people we're closest to who love us and we love them. They're the people who are most critical and get most upset at us. And we have the mo- these tense conversations with. So if somebody who cares for you and loves you is criticizing you, is accusing you of something, is upset at you about something, before taking it personally, of course it's you. How can I not take it personally? No, before getting offended, before getting your back up and saying, I need to defend myself, Hear what they're saying. Say, somebody who loves me is pointing out a flaw. He's pointing out something that I may have done wrong. This is worth listening to. I I, I need to hear this. So instead instead of saying, well, I'm upset now. Now you've upset me. Hold that for a moment. This is excruciatingly hard. This is tzimtzum. This is real self-contract and self-control. Put aside that emotion and say, I'm going to hear what you're saying. I'm going to care for what you're saying. I'm going to allow you the space to say it. And I'm going to, I'm going to actually listen without taking offense. Because most of the time offense was not intended. Of course, it would be helpful if the person speaking expresses that. If the person speaking says, I'm not trying to upset you i'm not trying to offend you um i i just want to constructively try and work together well if, if somebody speaks like speaks in those terms it's much easier to receive the message but it doesn't always come that way your job is to contract yourself to recede your emotional response and not take offense Don't take it personally. Hear what's being said. And then you can mull over it. And then you can take it personally. Take it on. Take it on board. That's Simpson listening. And finally, in Simpson listening is to trust the speaker. Is to trust that the person who's speaking actually has something to say. We sometimes dismiss people out of hand before they've even opened their mouths saying that person doesn't know what they're talking about. They have their own issues and they need to blame somebody else. So they're upset at me or this person, they, they don't know what they're saying. They don't have insight and what they're sharing is coming out of their own hurt or their own frustration. It's very safe to set ourselves up that way because that way we're impervious to any criticism because the deliverer of the message is not worthy of it. What, what do they know? They've got their own issues. Maybe they do, but they still might have something to say. Trust that a person speaking to you 
actually has a message that you need to hear. In fact, the Kabbalists taught that anytime anyone says something to you, it's not for no reason. It's because you have to hear that. Even if what they said was somewhat misguided, or they misunderstood, or they didn't, the fact that you heard it was a message for you. And certainly when it's somebody who's close to us, who does have an insight into us that we may not have on ourselves, because we can't see ourselves like somebody else sees us, trust that they actually have something to say. Instead of assuming that you already know better or that they don't have a message for you. Tzimtzum listening means I'm putting myself aside and allowing somebody else to have dignity. They have the dignity of being worthy to be listened to. So I have to give them complete attention, not be all over the place. I have to suspend my assumptions and hear what they're saying and make sure I get it right. Withhold my response while I'm listening. Not take it personally and trust that they actually have a message that I need to hear. This is Tsimsum listening. Imagine we practice this, even a bit. Imagine how, how different a conversation will be tried out. And, and it, it actually works. In all of these cases, we are mimicking exactly the divine form of Tsimsum. That God is on the one hand completely present. He's creating the universe. And yet completely absent, he's giving us total room to be ourselves. And that's the same here, that in, in Tsimtsum listening, we're completely present. We're not, ab we're not absent in the sense that we're avoiding the conversation. We're not, we're not shut off. On the contrary, we're co completely there. And yet, while we are completely there, we're totally open to hearing. So it's not about me and my thoughts and my preconceptions. I'm actually listening to you. So I'm there. I've got to be there. I've got to be present. I've got to be there with my entire being. And at the same time, not shining my light to take up the space, but contracting my light to allow, allow you the space. That balance, that mix is exactly what God did to create the world. And this is the, the idea of Tzimtzum that the Kabbalists developed. Being totally present and you're completely absent. Totally there, and yet giving the space for another. And we, we can do the exact same thing. This is, this is hinted at in the Zohar, the carving out that God did. He engraved a space to allow there to be space for another. And this is what the Arizal took, took forward as being the light of God being concealed. His self is there, but his light is concealed. He's totally present, and yet he's not shining to overwhelm. He's giving space for the world. And that's what Tanya said, that this is, this is two opposites that we cannot possibly understand. How can God be expressing his creativity and yet hiding himself at the same time, creating and yet not being detectable? But this dichotomy, the human soul can also achieve being completely present in a moment and totally putting yourself aside. And when we do that, we're practicing the power of Tsimtsum, the divine art of being at once completely present, totally involved, and yet saying nothing. Without saying a word, we're completely there. 
So let's see if in the, the next few days we can have a symptom listening session with somebody that we love, where we completely focus ourselves with complete presence, and yet we say nothing, we're totally giving space. We'll then get the chance to talk after, and they'll do the symptom listening, but that's later. The, the, the first step is to be divine, to be totally present and say nothing. Okay. I'm going to have a look at the chat. There are a couple of questions there and also open to anyone who would like to share, um, ask a question. We'll be at, get a chance to do that. So let's just first look in the chat where they go. Okay. So the question, the first question in the chat is, um, as we reveal the light of godliness, will materiality be conversely concealed? As we mentioned earlier, that creation was God hiding himself, concealing himself, tzimtzum, to allow us to exist. And then our mission is to invite him in through doing more and more good, bringing holiness into the world. Well, if we do that, if we're successful, as we reveal the light of godliness, will the material world be concealed to allow him in? So no. That would have happened before creation. If God's light shines, there can't be the material physical world. Finiteness gets subsumed in infinity. That's how the world would be before creation. If God would not have done the symptom, there'd just be God. And as God shines, there can be nothing else. What we are doing is we're refining the material world through living in physical bodies in a physical world and utilizing the physical world for holy acts. Every mitzvah you do, every good deed you do involves something physical if you give charity this physical stuff that you're giving it, uh, when you do when you do acts of kindness it's an act with your body with, with the physical world you're refining the physical world to actually be a vessel for the divine light so they don't have to be contradictory what we are proving on a daily basis is that god and the world are not contradictory and we do that by living a holy elevated refined spiritual life in this physical world so the physical world can coexist with the divine line. That's, that's the ultimate purpose. And that, that's what Mashiach is. The next question, what happens when we decide something but it doesn't happen because of outside influence? Accidents, incidents, someone else's influence. Is it God making the decision for us in the end? So that's a fascinating question. It, it happens so often that we have free choice. So we were deciding this is the way my life is going to go. This is what I want to do. And then something happens out of our control and pushes us in a different direction. So the question is, does that mean God was making a decision for us? The answer is yes, for sure. Everything that happens, even the things that we choose, was also God's decision. It's also meant to be. You see, free choice is only about what I'm going to do next. That I have free choice to a certain extent. I can't control what's going to happen to me or what circumstances around me are going to be. I can only control what my choice, the direction I take, my response to the world that I'm, that I'm given. But once it's done, even if it was my choice, that was also what God wanted. And this is another paradox, which probably deserves a different, different uh, class of its own, that even the mistakes we make, in retrospect, they're supposed to happen. 
Doesn't mean go and make a mistake. You need to try and choose the right thing. But once it's done, it's meant to be. And what I need to choose is the right response to that mistake. What I do next. But certainly when we plan one way and things force us another way, that's God showing us that that's where, where it's supposed to be. What I'm supposed to do next, I don't know. So this doesn't mean if I find myself in a situation that is bad. Let's say I, uh, I wanted a certain job. I didn't get the job. I got a different job. And now the job I'm in, I find that, that uh, the people are asking me to do something that's uh, immoral, that's, that, that's unethical. I don't say, well, God put me in this job, so I'm supposed to be unethical. No, he put me here to test me to see what I'm going to do. Am I going to stand up and do the right thing or am I going to follow? So I always have free choice for the next step. But what got me here? God got me here. That's for sure. Okay, another question here. If light is concealed for the world to exist, does the world cease to exist if light is fully revealed? Which is a similar question to what we, we addressed earlier. That the answer is no, because we are refining the world. And this is an accumulative thing. Every generation has pushed the world a little bit holier. Even if it looks like the world's getting worse, it's not. It's getting holier. It's getting more advanced because goodness and light accumulates. Evil and, and negativity does not. Negativity and evil is a non-entity that does not accumulate. The evil of all generations does not add up to more evil. Evil of each generation just goes and the next generation has its own evil. But the good of every generation builds up and, and accumulates. And so we are closer now to the divine light being revealed than, than ever before. Doesn't mean we can see it anymore. It might be even darker than, than ever before. But the tipping point of where that light floods into the world could be one little mitzvah, one little act, and that, that will transform everything. So we're getting closer. Next question, why does God create such a spiritual reality, such, such a system? Why hide from us just so we can do mitzvah to bring him back? So, of course, God could do anything he wants. God is all-powerful, and he could create the world in any way he wanted. It doesn't have to be in a system like this that we just presented. He could, he could have done anything he wanted. In other words, when we say that this conundrum, that how can God create a world, be present, and not overwhelm the world, that's through our paradigm of logic and our, our system of thinking. God could have created a different system where that paradox didn't exist. But the Kabbalists explain, God chose to create the world in such a way that we will be able to relate to him. If he created the world in a way that had no system whatsoever, then we human beings would not have a way to climb up to him, to work him out, to, to connect with him. He created the world in such a way that we have a logical mind and he created it through a logical system that you can actually extrapolate back to him and connect with him. If he wouldn't have done it that way, then we wouldn't be able to relate to him. Of course, you could say he could have done it in another way that, that we could relate to him. True, but he did it this way. Can you speak about the connection between contraction and birthing? Even the word contraction, a mother diminishes her body to allow someone else to exist. Absolutely that the experience of pregnancy and birth is giving a space for, for another, for another being. And, and contraction, we use the word contraction for, for birth as well. And, and there's, no, there's no question that the most selfless act is to host another, another being within you and, and to give them life and, and to, to allow the space for them to exist. And then it continues. Uh, through parenting, 
Parenting is also being totally present, giving your all, and yet allowing space for a child to be themselves, to, to be an independent being. So it's a, it's a con continuing uh, experience. Um, there's a lot of talk about shining our light in the world. Is this misdirected? Is it important to conceal our light at specific times? Well, that's interesting. I think um, there is, um, there is uh, I guess, sometimes an overemphasis on being expressive. And sometimes we actually need to give space and allow others to express. It's not all about shining my light. It's, it's also about allowing others to shine their light. And so um, I, think, I think when, uh, when we do emphasize my life as being about me fulfilling my potential, that's true. I, I, I need to fulfill my potential, but a part of that is giving space for others to fulfill their potential. That's also a part of, of my mission. And so I don't think that we need to stop shining our light. No, we do. We have to continue shining our light, but we also have to know when it's time not to shine, but to allow somebody else to shine and let that, uh, let, let that be expressed. So how does logic, here's the next question, how does logic intertwine with the contradiction of God not being present and providing space whilst always being there? So we did say from the Tanya that there's a certain point that our logic cannot understand, which is, is itself logical. It makes sense that we should not be able to understand and grasp God. That makes sense. Of course, my mind is finite. God is infinite. Infinity cannot be contained by the finiteness of my mind. So it's totally reasonable, logical to say that there's a certain point that logic can take us beyond which it cannot take us. And so there's no suggestion by the Kabbalists that we should be able to understand everything. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and take our logic to its logical conclusion, to as far as it can go. And so there's, there's, but there's always going to be a point in every Kabbalistic conversation where we say, this is where logic has taken us. Beyond that, we cannot go. We cannot understand. And that's where, where, that's where faith comes. Faith is not lower than logic. It's not a lack of logic. It's what transcends logic. There's a point where I don't know with my mind, I see it with my soul. And that's, where, that's what faith is, seeing, seeing with my soul. So for God to be completely present, his essence is totally here, and yet his light is hidden. The words are fine. We can say the words. But how does that work? How, how, how can you? How can you be totally present and not be felt? That, that we can't understand. That's where we can't understand God. That's, that only God can do. And the godly part of ourselves. Okay. So another question has come here with Tsum listening. What about when it is abusive communication? A very, very powerful question. So I think that with Tsum listening, you'll be able to identify abusive communication much quicker. When, when we're speaking to somebody who's not healthy and and they're not, they're not being reasonable or, or, or fair, and they're actually not out for our best interests. So sometimes it's, it's hard to actually decipher that because we're so involved with the conversation, especially if you're not like that. If you're, an, if you're a, a decent, nice person and you're speaking to somebody who is not being nice at the moment, 
well, your, your initial reaction is, well, surely they're, they're nice too. Surely they mean well. So it, it couldn't be that they're actually trying to, to hurt me here. That, that's on some level, very often the, the, the response that we have. Whereas if we would do symptom listening, where we're not putting our assumptions, we're actually hearing what they're saying. So then it'll be easier to identify that there's something not healthy here coming out here. I still might need to hear it. I still might need to hear, hear the message, but the message here might be that this person needs help. I need, I, I need to actually feel some, some compassion for this person who is out of, they're really out of hurt coming to attack me. That doesn't mean that what they said has no validity. They might have some kernel of it or it might not. But if you're not getting emotionally involved in the conversation, but you're just, just listening, then you'll be able to reflect and say, so was there anything there based on reality or is this completely not based on reality? And that's where after listening, you check into yourself and, and say, how, how did that land? How did that statement just land? How, how does, how, what is my response now? And it might be easier then to decipher and ascertain the healthiness of that conversation or whether it was not actually coming from a healthy place at all. Okay. If anyone wants to ask any more questions, they're welcome. Otherwise, we'll uh, call it a night and please God continue with mind-blowing Kabbalah same time next week.